Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast. I'm Russell Alexander. Today's topic is Ontario Courts to Paperless. Could COVID-19 drive digital change? We've seen a lot of restrictions on access to the Ontario court system because of the pandemic. Courts are closed. They're only hearing emergency and very limited matters as a result of the infrastructure that we're going to talk about. We've got some special guests with us today um, that are joining us who are going to help us understand what changes can be made. We have two lawyers who are practicing in paperless environments right now. So Rich Harris, start us off, introduce yourself and welcome. You bet Russ. Thank you very much. And thanks for putting this on. Um, like you said, I'm Rich Harris. I'm the principal of the Harris Law Firm. We're a family law only firm located in Denver, Colorado, primarily. Although I'm coming to you today from my bedroom with my favorite dog, but uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Rich. And we also have Brian Walters. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I'm Brian Walters. I have a firm in uh, Texas, uh, Walters Gilbreth, that uh, we have about 20 staff in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. Um, I'm actually coming to you from uh, California, uh, but I'm happy to be here and share what I know. Thanks for joining us, Brian. And Lynn Kerwin, welcome. Thank you, Russ. So my name is Lynn Kerwin. I practice in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I am a uh, lawyer at Galpro Family Law. We do just family law only. Um, our courts are completely paper, paper courts. It is not a paperless court. We have to file papers in just about every type of proceeding. Uh, we have about 12 lawyers on our staff and uh, the complete staff is about 20, 20 people. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Lynn. Really appreciate it. So I think some of the changes uh, we're calling for will become the new normal for many Ontario courts after the pandemic is over. Um, you know, I, the caveat to this, I know judges are working very hard. They're very concerned about access to judge, uh, justice for the public. They want to show leadership role and they are somewhat bootstrapped by their technology right now. We have clients complaining that they can't access courts for parenting disputes. Um, they don't understand that uh, how the system can grind to a halt so quickly uh, when people need help. Obviously in Ontario, safety is the number one uh, issue. We want to protect our staff. We want the court staff to be safe. We want judges to be safe. So. There are a lot of restrictions that have been put in place. Um, we're calling to support a new modernized system of electronic filing and tracking, and hopefully go to a fully paperless procedure that we see throughout courts in the US and other jurisdictions. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit more, Lynn, about what we experienced in Ontario in terms of our system and how it's paper-based? Yeah, I mean, every single thing, every single thing that you do in our court basically is paper. So uh, if you start an application in our court, um, the application and the answer, the reply, the motion material, it's all contained in a continuing record. And in that continuing record, it's like a book and it can be extremely thick. And we just keep 
adding more and more volumes to that continuing record, which is the book that the judge gets and rely upon um, whenever we go before the judge. So you can imagine how um, cumbersome that can be for a judge who, you know, sometimes the paper gets misplaced, sometimes people don't update the table of contents, and we're all sitting there going, okay, you know, wasting a lot of time in court looking for things. So um, yeah, it's all paper-based. It's unfortunate we've, we've never progressed beyond that, um, but we are restricted by the Ontario Family Law rules. And in our Ontario Family Law rules, until we amend those rules, we're stuck with what we got. And so there is no e-filing and there's no e-service. It's all has to be done by paper. Right, and it's come to a screeching halt. Um, you know, the Superior Court last week or two, a few weeks ago suspended all proceedings. Only emergency uh, hearings can occur digitally. And there's a variety of opinions as to what an emergency means. Uh, some judges are taking a strict interpretation of the practice direction. Other judges are a little bit more fluid and practical trying to come up with solutions for families. Uh, so that makes it difficult for lawyers to advise their clients, you know, in terms of what's an emergency, what's going to happen if we go to court. And just so our listeners understand, it is so bogged down that I am informed, and this may change uh, in the near future, that when we send an emergency matter to the judge, it's done via email electronically, the judge doesn't even have access to the court file. Uh, so all they have is the information the lawyers provide. So judges are asking lawyers to provide copies of any relevant orders. They're asking lawyers to provide draft orders that they're, they're seeking. Um, they really have nothing, and they're working in a complete vacuum. Um, and a lot of that is because the paper files are in storage, the staff need to bring it up. They're not in, and there's just no mechanism in place to allow the digital hearing to go forward. Um, so, you know, we're at a standstill and I think uh, what's in place now is going to be changed. We did receive a directive from our Chief Justice of the Superior Court on March 27th, indicating that they're going to be making changes and expanding services on April 6th. Sorry, it's March 27th, April 6th, they want to expand services. Um, that could include case conference, that could include motions. We're not sure what it's gonna include yet. And it sounds like it may be inconsistent across the province based on the facilities at each courthouse. Um, you wanna talk a little bit, Lynn, about what's in place yeah. now? Yeah, I, I'd love to talk about that, um, Russ. Uh, the, the directive seems to me to be extremely limited. Um, again, I think our Chief Justice is confined by the family law rules. And the family law rules already uh, have provision in it um, for teleconferences and video conferences. That there are already rules in place for that. It's just that we've never really made use of them until now. And we're saying urgent, and it's very limited. It's urgent uh, motions uh, where the child is at risk and urgent case conferences. And they're conducting these by way of a teleconference. And the lines, there are not enough uh, telephone lines to even be able to handle that. So there's no video conferencing set up, even though uh, the family law rules 
have stated that you can have a, a video conference for a motion or a case conference. It's just never been used. And it's beyond me why. Other than the technology, it, it costs money for the technology. Right. And, you know, there are some limited video bail hearings that I've seen yeah. um, where they don't want to bring the prisoners in. So maybe we should go to the jails to practice family law. I'm not sure, but that's you know how far behind the system is. Uh, but that's in stark contrast to what we're seeing in some jurisdictions in the U.S., where paperless filings uh, are not only the norm; they're mandatory. Mandatory. Um, so let's talk about uh, some experience we have from our panel today. Rich, you're in Colorado, and I know this is. Um, you're probably uh, shaking your head thinking um, you haven't dealt with paper the way we have for 20 years plus and wondering what the hell these Canadians are doing. Um, <laughs> what's going on in Colorado? What do you have in place? How long has it been there? And how do you find it? Well, first of all, you're right. I'm shocked. You Canadians are usually way ahead of us and, and more advanced in lots of ways. Um, well, you're catching up on the socialism part real quick, I think. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm just, first of all, I'm sorry to you two practitioners and to all of the presumably thousands of people out there that are in limbo. Mm -hmm. um, my gosh, um, our clients are freaking out. The general public here is freaking out because our courts are physically closed. Um, but, you know, out of all the things we're worried about and answering questions about, whether or not we can file things doesn't cross our radar or hasn't. Um, we've been in an e-filing environment for, you know, like, like you said, Russ, a couple decades. Um, our law firm of 50 plus employees has been paperless for more than, more than that. Um, you know, the courts are limited, but, but we lawyers are just used to filing things electronically. Um, we avoid paper wherever possible. Right. And um, the, you know, similar in Texas, the courts, they've had mandatory filing since I think 2014. Um, that was spearheaded by uh, the Supreme Court of Texas. Uh, Brian, can you touch base and, and maybe let us know your experience in Texas with respect to e-filing? Sort of similar. We're used to it now. It's become second nature. And we actually had sort of a dry run with this in, in Houston, which is where I'm based out of. Um, and we do things by county here. So I'm in Harris County, which is four and a half million people, uh, third largest county in the United States. And so we had two and a half years ago, our county essentially shut down when Hurricane Harvey hit, if you recall the great, all that flooding. And uh, our office building was closed. The courts were closed. One of the, the there's two big court, 20 story court buildings. One of them is for criminal, one's for civil. The criminal building is still partially closed. Um, uh, we had the civil court uh, reopen pretty, you know, within I think about two weeks or so. So we had a bit of a dry run. Um, and that, you know, we, everybody knew that was going to end relatively soon. Um, and so this is a little bit more of a problem because it's, it's uncertain. Um, that said, we've still been able to have get, um, we've been able to have hearings by video. We've been able to get orders signed by electronically filing them. So it's, it's moved along, but it is, you know, ultimately no, um, no, um, 
substitute for actually open and functioning courts. Uh, but it has made things easier. And the e-process thing is just something we take for granted, the e-filing and paperless. It's just, it's just what we have, and we're used to it. Yeah, interesting. We both, uh, Rich and uh, Brian and I know a lawyer we love, Ken Peck, who's in South Carolina, but he gave me a, an interesting quote when I was preparing uh, the paper that we posted online proposing the changes. Ken said, he's filed in Denver court once from a tent in Grand Teton National Park, another time from a plane 35,000 feet up, and another time from the backseat of a car traveling through New Hampshire. It's life-changing. Uh, so has that sort of been your experience, Brian and uh, Rich? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's great. And um, it's just so much easier. And it, you know, it's like sending an email. It's really simple. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty terrific. Although I will tell you that that there are some challenges with it. Um, you can file up up until midnight on the day of a deadline. So if you're trying to, for example, make sure your associates getting something in on time, you can't yell at them until twelve oh one a.m. <laughs> when I'm usually hopefully fast asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point, though. Uh, what advice do you have for lawyers in the public in Ontario in terms of some of the downsides of going fully electronic? Um, you know, we've all heard and heard of stories of lawyers who are reluctant to go paperless and they hold on to the file as strong as they can. They're not going to let that paper file go. Um, what are some of the downsides of doing it digitally? Um, I'll go first. So, uh, you know, the, the management piece is one. Um, another is that um, for better or worse in Colorado, we have a single vendor that runs it. Um, and I suppose that's efficient from the perspective of a state of nine or 10 million people. But that vendor um, sets the prices. They've got a monopoly. Um, there have been a couple times, especially early on, they had glitches. It's not like you can go anywhere else. Um, then we're in a situation where everything's dead. Um, it's mostly good, though, right. um, and positive. That's a really interesting idea, and I'm not sure how well that's going to sell in Ontario. But when you're saying a vendor, you're using a private third entity to get the documents from your office to the judge's desk or, or computer screen. That's right. That's right. And who's the vendor that you're using? It's a statewide contract, and and forgive me, I don't know what they're called these days, but it's one of the big guys. It's it's Lexus Nexus or one right. of the one of the big companies. And where are the fees associated with that? Do you have a licensing fee or filing fees? How's that work? For us, it's a per document filing fee. Um, I don't know off the top of my head how much it is. It's fairly nominal. Um, you know, it adds up, of course, but uh, nothing compared to what we used to spend for postage and paper and courier. And in Ontario, we have to pay a, a filing fee to the government to process a divorce. Do you have to pay a filing fee to the state as well to process your documents? Yes, those are all the same, and those have been raised over the years. Um, the e-filing fee is a separate fee, an additional fee. So does the fee that you pay for your state or local government, is that collected by the third-party private company as well? 
You know, Russ, that's a really good question. I'm not sure um, how our expert staff handles that. Let's flip it over to Brian. Brian, how, how does the mechan mechanics of filing work in Texas? Yeah, there's a multiple private vendors that, that are competing with each other for, and you can choose whoever you want to to, to handle the e-filing. Um, and there's a central database of emails uh, um, that the state bar uh, has available that's open um, so that you, you know that you're e-serving the right person. Um, the fees are nominal um, and, as Rich said, much less expensive than it used to be when you had to run mm -hmm. people down to the courthouse and less expensive for the clients because you know, a lot of those fees would get passed on to them. So it's a nominal, very small, um, you know, probably around a dollar per filing. It's, uh, and there's lots of competition. So I haven't, uh, we haven't had any problems with it. And do they receive the government fees too for whatever is required? For you pay that, you do, you pay that through them and then that's passed directly on to the, uh, to right. the government entity. Right. I have, I, I've met some lawyers in Ontario who don't have very busy practices or not, no support staff. So they've told me stories of having to prepare an application and line up at the courthouse for an hour and a half to try to get it filed. You think what an incredibly inefficient use of you know legal resources just standing there waiting. But um, so we've got some proposals. You know, it's easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks and criticize all the time. But what we've tried to do is uh, come up with some ideas that Ontario can implement to improve and maybe go paperless or di more digital. One is switching the default vantage point to create a new normal. So rather than having the electronic version be the exception, I, I would suggest that that should be the normal and paper should be uh, the last resort. Um, again, electronic filing should be the default. Hard copies, I think, going forward should be rare. In rare, I mean maybe trial exhibits of original documents that require uh, verification or inspection or things of this nature. Rich, do you have another point to uh, contribute? Sure, I would just add with respect to the um, exhibits and the other documents. Um, we can file all sorts of lengthy exhibits periodically. Um, our paralegals need to think about breaking those up because if they're large files, they, they have a harder time getting over. But um, our rules accommodate for um, electronic signatures, of course. Um, I would add, too, that just a few days ago, Colorado Supreme Court amended our rules to allow notarizations to occur remotely. So that sort of takes the last vestige of, of why we had to meet in person and stamp things with, with real signatures. Um, at least for now, the notary uh, requirement is now uh, virtual, which is great. Right. And in terms of the, uh, the, the steps, are you using DocuSign or what, how are you, what programs are you using to get these signatures done remotely or digitally? Yep, we're using DocuSign and also the um, fancier version of Adobe. Right. Adobe offers the same program. Right. And Brian, you've got uh, some tips too. Right. I mean, I, I think... I've echoed everything Rich has said so far. I don't, I, there's nothing I've really, uh, I really think otherwise than that. I mean, it's, um, 
I think either one of what the systems that we're using here seem to work well. Um, you know, you might want to make it some minor changes, but I, I don't have anything specific to add. Here. Have you guys evolved to digital courtrooms where you're conducting motions or conferences or even some trials uh, remotely? We we have um, at this point both sides have to agree to do that, and um, that means whoever's the foot dragger usually won't. Um, but we have had a couple of those type of hearings, which have worked just fine. It usually pretty, were pretty simple procedural matters. Right. So the foot drag dragger doesn't want to have a hearing that quickly, I imagine. Right, and they just object to it for to foot drag. Just to be objectionable. <laughs> All exactly. right. Uh, Rich, how about you? Any uh, virtual or digital conferences, motions? Well, we've long had telephonic hearings in our cases, right. especially for simpler uh, procedural hearings. Um, but since the virus has hit, we're handling all sorts of um, full-blown hearings on the merits by phone. Um, there are some um, jurisdictions and our, our practice like Brian's is county based. So there are certain jurisdictions where they're implementing within the last week um, video hearings. Um, it's not very common here um, other than for criminal situations like you guys apparently have in Canada. Um, but I suspect there's going to be a lot more of it. There needs to be because from my perspective, there are due process issues under our constitution with not being able to see witnesses, at least on video, in my opinion. Nobody's objecting to it now, but I think it's going to come up. Right. Interesting point. Lynn, can you jump in here? Yes. Um, so in the commercial law context in Ontario, uh, there have been e-hearings um, and paperless hearings, and that occurred in 2014. So um, it's been around in a commercial context where um, the judges, even without the consent of the parties, will order a e-hearing, electronic hearing. So in two cases that I know of, um, the hearing went uh, relatively smoothly. The, the justice, Justice New in the Chandra versus CBC case, uh, commented that the witnesses was uh, hearing the witness through a video conference was as spontaneous as if the, the witness was right there physical in the courtroom. So um, the sound system was excellent. Uh, they had a split, a split screen with the document um, shown on the screen and then shown to the witness and questions, cross-examinations, just as if the witness was right there. So it is, it has been happening. It's just um, the, judiciary and lawyers are not embracing it. They have a fear of it. And so, um, you know, even though it's possible to do this and a judge can order it in a commercial context, uh, people are still reluctant, reluctant to go ahead that way. Yeah, I think it was Justices Brown and Mew that you wrote about and they seem to be yeah. ahead of their time. Yes, yes, Justice yeah. Mew totally embraces it. And you know, in one of his judgments, Bank of Montreal versus Fabish, he he said, you know, you guys are like dinosaurs. Let's let's move forward with uh, the technology that's there. And he's chastised lawyers and judges for not moving forward with the type of technology that is available. That was several years ago, too, right? 
Yeah, 2014, Justice yeah. Brown. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I've personally done hearings where uh, witnesses were out of province um, or weren't able to travel for certain reasons. So we've Skyped them in this. Um, and it was interesting, you know, there, we would schedule around the witnesses time. So we would know, you know, at 11 o'clock, we're going to break the regular testimony to bring this witness in and, and conduct cross-examination. And the judges had the judge in that case had questions too. And, uh, I think it's just a matter of getting, uh, making it part of the new normal, make it, you know, and I know there's a lot of, a lot of lawyers who don't like the idea. And I guess there's an argument that could be made if there's a credibility assessment, you know, the courtrooms designed, sometimes people would argue in part to put stress on litigants because they want, you know, test their, um, test the veracity of their evidence. And that's something, you know, Maybe you can only do it in person. I don't know. Maybe you could do it electronically. What do you think of that idea, Brian? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we definitely bias down here toward live court testimony, but I don't, I agree with you. I mean, you can, on the other hand, you can take a video deposition and play that. It's just, just as good evidence. I don't know why that would be any different than, uh, than otherwise. And we have a lot of cases down here, um, as I'm sure you guys do, that involve people that are in other states, other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, I got an inquiry this morning from um, an issue that's over in Germany. Um, also, we live in a, like, like you all do, very large urban areas where it's an right. hour, hour and a half drive to, to get to the courthouse each way. And, you know, just for someone to could drop in and give, you know, some short testimony seems like a waste of time. Or for a busy professional, for a you know, healthcare professional to come in and testify about a, or some medical records, it seems really wasteful. So... I, I don't know why we don't do more of that. And maybe this is going to be a, uh, encourage people to. Right. Rich credibility and in-person testimony. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Well, well I, I can see the argument that, that being in a physical courtroom is, is more intimidating and maybe test the veracity of, of, of evidence. To me, it's so outweighed by the benefits of cost and efficiency of, of doing things electronically. It's just, I think our colleagues 10 years from now will look back on, on these kinds of conversations and, and wonder why we even had them because I, we're almost definitely going this way. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, what do you think of the issue of credibility and in-person um, testimony? So I agree that the, uh, you know, um, the benefit far outweighs the the negatives of this particularly in mobility cases and family law where you know you've got people that uh, you know have to travel uh, by plane or otherwise to the jurisdiction where the child ordinarily resides and they can't afford it i mean my clients can't afford it it's uh, ridiculous that they can't provide their testimony in our jurisdiction in barry just in my office and um, they can sit there and be cross-examined. I mean, I can't, there's so many women out there and men that cannot afford the type of uh, legal fees that are astronomical because, because of um, the archaic system that we are in. You know, if, if, we could, if we could have the video conferencing, that would make so much more sense um, and much more affordable if we implemented that. So yeah, I agree that, you know, it, it, it far outweighs the downside of credibility, spontaneous, uh, but as Justice New said, he, he found it completely seamless. Right. 
and may alleviate a lot of the jurisdictional arguments. You know, we're changing our divorce act to deal with mobility differently. But a lot of it is, you know, the convenience of, you know, the connection to community. Where is the witness? Where are the witnesses? Where are the parties residing? You know, a lot of those arguments that root a case in a certain jurisdiction uh, may get watered down a little bit now if we can do it electronically. Mm -hmm. Right. So these are great tips, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. If you look at our paper on familyllb.com, you can find more specific recommendations that have been made. Uh, so let's bring this train into the station, so to speak, and get some closing comments. I want to thank everybody in advance for being here today. I know everybody's incredibly busy, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time out to help us educate the public and our listeners in terms of some changes that we can make moving forward. So again, starting with uh, senior counsel, maybe uh, I'll turn the talking stick over to Rich for his closing comments. Well, thank you, Russ. Um, I uh, appreciate you doing this. I, um, I think it's a great thing that lawyers such as you and, and Lynn and my friend Brian up there and Barry are, are pushing in your great country or at least your province. I think it's important. I think that, you know, as we look at what's going on with the coronavirus, hopefully modernizing the legal system is one of the silver linings that, that come out of this. Yeah. I hope everybody stays safe and healthy. It'd be nice if a lot of these changes, uh, even not just the court system, but even the changes we're seeing in our practice where we're um, meeting and, and talking with colleagues via Zoom and getting that face-to-face -face connection, you know, it creates a different sense of team and connectedness. And it would be nice to see that continue on as well after all the pandemic is, um, is over and behind us. Brian Walters, closing comments. Uh, sorry, uh, just come and join us in the, uh, the modern times. Um, it'll be a, a quick uh, and easy transition and you'll wonder where, why you weren't doing it earlier. Just like the same with us. What's that song, All My Exes Live in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I think that is a song, yep. Yeah, well, probably because the rules are slightly different down there too, I think. Um, Lynn, closing comments? Yes, I just hope we don't lose the momentum. Um, you know, this COVID-19 has been the impetus for judges to all of a sudden say, okay, we got to do something and we got to do it now. Um, we can't wait for another 10 years for the reforms to go forward. We should capitalize on this now. We have an urgent situation. We have uh, judges, our Ontario um, Superior Court judges saying, you know, we can make use of the technology. We can do it. We just have to continue with that even after the pandemic and carry it forward and not lose the, that momentum. Yeah, and it seems the institution of the justice system is inherently uh, slow to change. Uh, sometimes it could take years or uh, decades for the culture of change to implement, but you're right, Lynn, I think this is a good opportunity for all the stakeholders to uh, move the ball forward in, um, look towards a paperless, more digital justice system. Looking forward to Chief Justice Morowitz's uh, direction and information on April 6th. He has a fireside chat coming up on Monday where he's doing some Q&A with the Advocate Society. Um, but it'll be 
interesting and hopeful that, that some of the changes they're going to be making and some of the expanded services uh, will include move towards uh, paperless and a digital format. I think that I think it's a must. There's no other options right now in dealing with paper. So those are my concluding comments. I want to thank again everybody for joining us today. I want to thank our listeners and viewers for uh, tuning in to Family Law Now. Be safe, everyone. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good afternoon. And I want to close out with that. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Russ. Take care, guys.